So, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Jazakallah khair for joining back in. Sorry about the small technical difficulties that we had. And inshallah, hopefully, that won't happen next week. So, we have covered quite a bit. The last time session, we got as far as the birth, the actual birth of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And we spoke about the events, events that led up to that. Um, we spoke about experiences that his mother Amina had. We spoke about um, the, the army of the elephant invading. We finished off that narration. So today where we're going to start is we're going to begin with the early childhood of the Prophet Muhammad So when he was born the first few years. And actually, we don't actually have that much information, but you know, it's okay, it's not a problem because we know that whatever we need to know about the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has definitely preserved it for us. There's nothing about him that isn't known to us that needed to be known by us. So, okay, what do we know? Well, we know that a newborn baby, any of us who've got kids, everybody knows a newborn baby needs feeding, needs feeding milk. So usually that's by the mother, but she's not the only one that feeds the baby because there can be other women, there can be wet nurses. And this happens in many cultures in the world. Um, sometimes it will be an auntie, sometimes it will be, you know, somebody else in the family who's also had a baby and they can also feed the baby as well. So we know that the first one to feed the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was his own mother, Amina. But we also know that he was nursed by other women. And there are three other women that we know about. And you might think to yourself, oh gosh, you know, do we really need to know anything about these women? But actually it's it's really quite important because if they nursed the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, then because of that, there is a relationship now between these women and the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, they become his milk mothers. And this milk relationship creates an extended family relationship as well. So it's not as deep as say like a, a, a true blood relationship, a true biological relationship as far as you know, laws of inheritance and things like that happen. But still you are related. So if you have a milk mother, then any of her children that she's nursed become your milk sisters, your milk brothers, and that actually will affect your marriage capability, your marriage um, pool, if you like, in the future. One of the women that we know about, and actually she was the second woman to have nursed the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, after his mother Amina, was a woman whose name was Thuwaiba which I think is a beautiful name. And actually it comes into some cultures. You hear the, the name Sobia. You might've heard the name Sobia before. That's actually kind of a, a version of this name. So her name was Thuwaiba and she was a slave girl who was owned by the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, whose name was Abu Lahab. Um, most probably you've heard of him. Now we know that from last time's uh, episode, we, we we found out that he actually freed her 
when she came to give him the news of the birth of the Prophet Muhammad because he was so overjoyed. I mean, remember Abdullah, the father of the Prophet Muhammad had passed away before the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was even born. So effectively, he was an orphan because an orphan really is a person who has no father. In, in most kind of cultures now, it means a person who has no father and mother, but Islamically, it actually means a person who has no father. Um, so the Prophet Muhammad was an orphan and his uncles were overjoyed and Abu Lahab was overjoyed as well when he was born. So he freed this slave girl when she came to give him the good news that, um, that the Prophet Muhammad was born. Now, she, even though she was freed at that point, she still carried on working with the family and she was one of the first other women to nurse or feed the Prophet Muhammad She also uh, fed Hamza, may Allah be pleased with him, who was, we know, the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad And he was actually born not that far in time from the Prophet Muhammad He was just a few years older, but there wasn't much um, of an age gap between them. So not only was Hamza the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad he was also his milk brother. And this increased their closeness in their relationship. So Thawaiba herself, she had a son, obviously she would have had to have a baby to have milk, um, but she also nursed another um, person. And this actually, this, this little baby became a companion of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, whose name was Abu Salima. Now we'll see that this is very important that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and Abu Salima were actually both nursed by the same woman. And we'll see that in, in a minute actually. So this lady, Thawaiba, may Allah be pleased with her, she later accepted Islam when the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, received prophethood. And it is said in the narrations that the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings be upon him would regularly throughout his life, he would send gifts to her and he would visit her. And he would also, when he was older and he had his own children, when they were younger, he would take them to visit her and he would say to them, this is one of my mothers. So he gave her so much respect. And Khadija, the first wife of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, she would also extend that same sort of uh, care and respect for Thawaiba. She would send her gifts, she would visit her as well. So they had so much love and respect for her and they literally, they treated her like she was family. Um, and she passed away seven years after the Hijra. Um, and we know that she was Muslim when she passed away. Later on in the Sira, remember I said it was important that Abu Salima was also nursed by the same lady, Thawaiba, and she also nursed the Prophet Muhammad. So later on, well, what happened was the daughter, and I know this is going ahead into Sira, we will get there, inshallah, one day, but just to say why it was important. The daughter of Abu Sufyan, whose name was Um Habiba, may I be pleased with her, she was one of the wives of the Prophet Muhammad. And she she gave a proposal to the Prophet Muhammad for her own sister. She thought to herself, you know what? Uh, it's such it's such a respectful, amazing position to be in, to be one of the mothers of the believers, be the wife of the Prophet Muhammad She wanted to share that blessing with her own blood sister. So she said to the Prophet Muhammad you know, why don't you marry my sister? Really, I won't mind at all. 
you know, I just want her to share in this blessing as well. Um, and he said to her, no, this isn't permissible. It's not, and actually this still stands, it is not permissible for a man to marry two blood sisters. He cannot marry them both at the same time. So she said, well, you know, she obviously was worried that she might have offended the Prophet Muhammad but she said, I only offered this because, you know, we were talking and we thought that maybe you were thinking of marrying the daughter of Abu Salima. The Prophet Muhammad said to her, you mean the daughter of Umm Salima and Abu Salima? And she said, yes, that's, that's who we mean. And he said, no, no, I couldn't marry her for two reasons. Firstly, because she is the daughter of one of my wives. And so this means that a man cannot marry his stepdaughter. So if he's married to the mother, he cannot marry the stepdaughter. And also he said, she is my niece through milk. Her father and I were married, were nursed, sorry, were nursed by the same woman, Thuweba. So this we can see, this is where that important nugget comes from, that we know that when you have a milk mother, you also then have milk relatives. And Abu Salima became the milk brother of the Prophet Muhammad Any of his children were therefore not halal to be married by the Prophet Muhammad So we understand this, this, this uh, concept through, through this hadith. So last time, in last time's episode, we mentioned that the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad Abbas, he saw his own brother, Abu Lahab, in a dream. And we mentioned that before. And we know that Abu Lahab said that the punishment that he was undergoing was lessened slightly on a Monday. Why Monday? Because we know that that was the day the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was born. So because he freed Thuweba, who had nursed the Prophet Muhammad who then became Muslim. And because he did that good deed, on Mondays, he said in this dream, my punishment that is non-stop is lessened slightly for that reason. So that was Thuweba, one of the milk mothers of the Prophet Muhammad She was the second woman to have nursed the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, after his own mother, Amina. The second woman who nursed the Prophet Muhammad after Amina was a woman by the name of Baraka. Baraka, what a beautiful name. I mean, what a beautiful name. It means blessing. And she played a very important role in the life of the Prophet Muhammad. We know that, again, this is slightly later in Sira, but when he was traveling with his mother when he was barely six years old, the other person on that journey with him and his mother was this lady Baraka. And we know that she was the one who after the Prophet Muhammad's mother Amina died and she arranged for the mother to be buried. She was the one who took the young child, took the Prophet Muhammad and brought him back to Mecca to his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. So she became almost like a mother to him at that point, you know, on that journey, she was the only one who was caring for him. Now, she's also more famously known as Um Ayman. That was her kunya, that was her, her title. And we know that she was from 
East Africa. Eamon was a son from one of her previous marriages. And we know that she had been a slave, Baraka had been a slave, and she was owned by Abdul Muttalib. And Abdul Muttalib had given her as a gift. I know this sounds strange to us now, but this is how slavery worked. She was given as a gift to his son Abdullah when Abdullah got married to Amina. And that's how she came to be in the household of Amina when the Prophet Muhammad was born. Now, so she nursed the Prophet Muhammad and later on, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, after he was married himself to Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her, he proclaimed that Barakah was free, but she still remained very close to the Prophet Muhammad even though she was free. Because to understand this, if you are a slave, freedom is one of the best things that can happen to you. We take our freedom for granted, but to be free means that you can go where you want, do what you want. She could have left completely. She was free now, but she was so close to the Prophet Muhammad that she stayed near to him. And it's mentioned in some narrations that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, actually when he would call her, he would say, Ya Um, oh mother, he would, that's how he would speak to her. And sometimes when he would uh, talk to other people about her, he would say about her, she is all that is left of my family. Because remember by this point, when he's older, his mother has passed away, his father has passed away. He has no siblings, not full siblings. He has some milk siblings. And he would say, she is all that is left of my family. That's how close he felt to her. He had so much love for her. We know she accepted Islam and she went on the first migration to Abyssinia, which is modern day Ethiopia. And later on, she joined the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, in Medina. She was also one of the women who accompanied the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and the Muslims when they would go on the battlefield and fight against the enemy. And she would go there and she would take care of the wounded. And we know that when her husband was martyred on the battlefield, the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, announced to the people, he said, whoever would like to marry a woman from the people of paradise, that person should propose and should marry Um Ayman. What a description to be described like that by the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, to be said, to be described like a woman from the people of paradise. So, and we know, and we'll see this later, that Zayd ibn Haritha, may I be pleased with her, he actually married Ummi Ayman. Um, and we'll, we'll see, uh, we'll, we'll recount Zayd's story later on in another episode. So Baraka, this, this beautiful lady, she was a very knowledgeable and very spiritual woman. And we know that when the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, passed away, we know that she cried and cried and cried. I mean, almost uncontrollably. And she said, you know, when people say to her, why are you crying? You know, this is the, the qadr of Allah, don't cry. This is said to so many people, isn't it? When people pass away that they love. And she said, I know. I mean, I absolutely knew he was going to pass away. I could tell by the ayahs that were being revealed. I knew by the way he was speaking to people. She said, I knew him. I raised him. I was like a mother to him. So it's not a shock to me. That's not why I'm crying, she said. I'm crying rather because I just realized that divine revelation 
will no longer come down. That the time of revelation, the final revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has come to an end forever. And this is why she was crying. And we know that, mashallah, she lived a long life. She actually passed away, we know, 20 days after the death of the second Khalif of Umar. And so after Umar passed away, 20 days after that, that's when she passed away. So she actually died in the Khalifa of Uthman, may Allah be pleased with him, who was the third leader of the Muslims after the Prophet Muhammad passed away. So those were two of the three women. There was Thuwaiba and there was um, Barakah. And before we continue and speak about the third of them and most probably the most famous of them, before we speak about her, I want to point out that both Thuwaiba and Um Ayman were both African, were both black. Now, this is something that is remarkable at that time because in that culture, in the time of when the Quraysh were at their powerful state, they thought that they not only were better than people of color, let's say, but better than all the other Arabs. They literally thought they were the cream of the crop. So for the Prophet Muhammad to have had two black African mothers, this shows this gives us an example, and this is a divine plan because the Prophet Muhammad is an example for everyone for all of time. We have so much racism in our culture and in so many societies across the world. But to be honest, theirs was actually almost to the next level. And yet these two ladies were so special, so dear to the Prophet Muhammad And this was truly the plan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I just wanted to point that out because, you know, in so many cultures, there is racism that is sickening. And we look at the life of the Prophet Muhammad and these two women were so close to him, mashallah. So the third of the women who nursed the Prophet Muhammad and like I said, most really the most famous name that everybody's heard of is Halima. May Allah be pleased with her. So to give her full title, Halima al-Sa'diyya, because she's from the Banu Sa'd, which is the one of the um, Bedouin tribes um, at that time. So one of the famous classical Sira scholars, Ibn Ishaq, and we have done an episode where we've gone through um, all the sources of Sira and the names of the people who were the scholars of Sira. So Ibn Ishaq, he narrates that it was the custom at that time, especially for you know, the very high status families, the elite families of the society, they would send their babies to be nursed and cared for by particular Bedouin tribes. Almost like in this day's, you know, today's culture, almost as if you have a nanny or a governess, that sort of thing. Um, but why did they send them? Because you would think to yourself, well, you've just had a baby and, you know, that bond is there between you and the baby. Why would you want to separate yourself from your little, your little bundle of joy, your little bundle of love? Well, there was a few reasons. They wanted them, they wanted their children to grow up in a clean environment. And the desert was far cleaner than the city. And I do air quotes of city because obviously it was quite small compared to the cities we think of, but the city of Mecca. And 
we know, as we all know very clearly today, that when you cut down on human interaction, then you will cut down on the possibility of spreading disease. So the disease at that time, especially, um, was resulting in a very high infant mortality. So to protect their children, actually, which is one of the reasons they would send them to be nursed by the desert Arabs. So the desert was thought as much cleaner environment to be in. Also, the Bedouins, why would they do this? What, you know, what, what did they get out of it? Well, it was a way of making money, but it was also a way of connecting themselves to powerful, rich families because a powerful foster son or milk son would feel it their duty to their milk mother, to their foster mother for the rest of their lives. And in that way, it was giving the Bedouin family a sort of a long time, long-term security, um, not just to the, to the lady herself, but also to her family too. Another reason why they would send their little babies to be nursed in the desert. Well, Mecca was a cosmopolitan city. Remember, so many people were coming into Mecca. We knew that the Yemenis had come into Mecca. There were a lot of people trading in Mecca as well. Mecca was um, sending trade caravans to the north and to the south, and there were people coming to do the pilgrimage at the Hajj time. So when you have this sort of flow of people in and out of a place, then the language that's spoken in that place can get changed. And they wanted their children to speak in a very pure Arabic tongue. So for the Arabs, the command of language, you know, the, the ability to be eloquent was incredibly important. And although we know, and we've spoken about this, that very few of them could actually read and write, the beauty of speech was such a thing that all the Arab parents wanted it for their children. People were judged by their eloquence and the highest of all speech was considered to be poetry. And they knew that it was in the desert that the actual spoken language was the closest to poetry. So the way the Bedouin Arabs would speak was the closest to that high eloquence of poetry. And they wanted this for their children. Okay. So let's look at Halima's account of what happened. We know that the, uh, the Bedouin women, their families, they would ride into Mecca. And we know that amongst them was Halima. Now she was married to a man whose name was Al-Harith and he was from the same tribe from the Banu Sa'ad. And they had their own children. In some accounts, they had two girls. In other accounts, they only had the one girl, but they also had a baby boy. And this was the baby that meant that Halima could nurse another baby as well. So some say that his name was Abdullah, some say his name wasn't known. The older girl's name is known. Her name was Shema. And it's known because she actually comes back into Syria much later um, towards the end of the Prophet Muhammad's life. And when we get to there, we'll, we'll speak about it. So Halima, what does she say? She says, and this is actually in, in the account of Ibn Ishaq. She says, it was a year of severe drought. Normally, she says, we would grow vegetation and we would rear livestock. This is how they'd live. She said, because it was 
severe drought, many women in the area decided to work as a wet nurse to help support the family. So when things were tough, the men were working, but the women would also try and support the family too. And we know that about 10 new mums, they'd have to be new mums to be able to nurse, 10 women rode out to Mecca. And it's a long journey. You know, it's, it's uh, at least about, you know, a few, four or five nights journey that they're going on. Um, and a journey that's of that length is going to be uncomfortable on a camel, because unless you're experienced riding a camel, it's not that easy. Horses, again, were only for those who were used to it. So the women would actually travel on mules or donkeys. That was the easier animal to travel on. So Halima says, I was riding our mule with my husband and our baby boy, um, and the husband was on the camel. So the husband was riding a camel, and she was riding a mule, and they had their little baby boy with them. She said, we were one of the poorest families and our mule was very weak because we didn't have enough to feed it. So there's no strength in this animal because they haven't got enough to feed the animal. The camel my husband was riding was a she camel and its milk was the provision we would have during the journey. So they'd taken their food along with, with them. So they, the she camel, she'd be able to give milk. So that's what they would drink. But she says, it didn't give much milk because we couldn't feed it enough. So my husband and I, was so hungry and I didn't have enough milk. She wasn't making enough milk for her baby. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never really traveled a long desert journey on a hungry camel and a slow mule. So I'm gonna try and make it a bit more real. So think about traveling at night through, if you're living in England, the moors, wherever you're living, open countryside and your car, is nearly running on empty. Yeah, you, you can see the empty sign coming up on the car. And perhaps there's wild animals, it's scary, you're hungry and tired, and you've got a newborn baby as well. It must have felt so hopeless and so worrying for them, because I don't know about you, but when I can't see out and I can't see what's going on around, but I can hear noises, I find that quite scary. So because her mule was so slow, because everything was going so slow for them, the other women, they'd gone ahead and Halima and her husband and baby had got left behind. So they were actually alone traveling through the desert. And finally, they were just one day's journey from Mecca. Remember, in a desert, you can only travel by night. There are no street lights. There is no headlights on a camel or a mule. So you can't travel at night. So when they camped she said her baby cried all night because her baby was hungry and she said they didn't sleep either because of the crying baby anyone who's had a crying baby knows you cannot sleep so by the time they arrived to mecca they're desperate and not only had they been left behind by the other women and the other families that had gone all the other women had got to mecca before her so they'd gone they'd done the rounds they'd gone to all of the uh, important mm. prestigious families and they had taken all of these babies and now she had no one left and she said that she got rejected from every home because everyone said no sorry we've given our baby to a lady already and everyone who she went to said there is one baby that's left it's the grandchild of Abdul Muttalib 
So she says, even I didn't want that baby because he was an orphan. And yes, he did come from a good family. I mean, after all, this is Abdul Muttalib's grandchild. Abdul Muttalib is like the de facto leader of Mecca. But by this stage, he's in his 70s. He's got a big family. So he's older now. He's got a big family. He's got lots of kids. He's got lots of grandchildren. You know, he's the leader of Mecca. He's not going to have the time or the money to give in exchange for her services. It's the parents that you expect the payback from. And the Prophet Muhammad's father is dead. What can you expect from the mother? You know, in that culture, you couldn't depend on the mother to be giving you lots of money, even if she did have money. It wouldn't be the kind of connections that you're hoping to get from an important man in the society. So, you know, really there's no point taking an orphan child. So she says, this is Halima, she says, after I made all the rounds, I realized that actually there was only one child left and that was this little orphan baby. So she says, I tell my husband and he says, okay, fine, let's, let's go home. But I say, oh no, even if we don't get any money, I don't want to go back empty handed. She said, it's gonna be embarrassing. I'll be the only one who came and left without a baby. Like I'm gonna go home unemployed. So she said, I think I'll, I'll go and get that little orphan baby. I mean, it's amazing. We said Baraka's name was blessing. Halima's name means someone who shows concern and compassion for others. And here she is showing concern and compassion for the little orphan baby boy, the Prophet Muhammad And her husband also, Harith, he says, you know, okay, go, go and get him. Maybe Allah might put some blessing for us, might put some barakah for us in taking that child. Because what they're doing is effectively an act of charity. And this shows what good hearted people they were. Halima and her husband, they were such a good hearted couple. They realized that taking care of an orphan is really a very noble thing. So what happens next is probably known to most of you, but if you don't know, well, it's absolutely just plainly miraculous. Remember she said, my child had been crying because I was out of milk. So the job interview for a wet nurse was that when you went and you said, you know, have you a baby? I will, I will be their witness. The, the mother would pass you the baby and ask you to feed the baby because the mother needed to be sure that her baby would feed well from the wet nurse. And in that way, you know, the mother's going to feel reassured that yes, this baby is going to get, my baby's going to get what he needs from this lady. So remember, she didn't have any milk. She could hardly feed her own baby. So she said, Halima says, as soon as I picked him up, وسلم, and brought him close to me and began, began to nurse him, I was able to feed him until he was full. And she said, I was so surprised and shocked, but so grateful that I immediately picked up my own baby, because remember her own baby is hungry, and fed him until he was full. And she says, I knew that something special was happening. So she's now very interested to take him. She's very keen to take this baby. So Amina, the mother of the Prophet Muhammad hands over the Prophet Muhammad to Halima to take back to the desert to nurse him for all those reasons that we spoke about. So she takes him back to her husband 
And this time, all of the other people that had come from her tribe had waited for her because she said to them, look, you left us behind on the way here. Please at least just wait for us when we're going back to our tribe. So everybody packs up, they leave, and Halima is on her slow, weak mule. Remember, it was really, it was too hungry. This poor mule couldn't really move very fast. But now she has the baby Muhammad with her. And now the mule is absolutely fine, walking really fast. In fact, completely outstripping everybody else's um, animal. And then when night draws and they camp, Halima and her husband, they're still really hungry. They've really barely eaten anything. So he says, you know, I'll go and try and milk that she camel. And she's like, what's the point? We know it's not going to give any milk. He said, okay, but you know, I'll try. And he milks the she camel and so much milk that not only does Harif, the husband, drink until he's absolutely full, Halima drinks till she's absolutely full, and yet the bowl still has milk in it. And she said then she nursed both the babies, Muhammad and her own little baby boy, and they were so full that they got such a good night's sleep. Anyone who has one baby knows that you don't really get much night's sleep. To have two babies and yet have a really good night's sleep, it just shows how absolutely content everybody was. So she carries on and she says, we reached home. Our home, she says, was a barren piece of land. Probably it was the worst in the area. And the drought, she said, had hit us very hard. The land was dry and hard and our livestock was dying because of the lack of vegetation. And she said, no one really wanted to let us graze our animals on their land. Everyone's having a bad time. So you can't really share your pasture with somebody else. But she said, when we got back, pretty soon, she said, our land was the greenest patch of land in the region. She said, our goats and sheep grazed to their fill and produced so much milk that they could actually start selling milk to other people. She said, the other people around us were still having such a hard time and the drought was still carrying on and she said they were amazed. Even some of their tribe's more wealthy leaders, they, would, they wouldn't graze their own um, cattle like Harith would take his own goats and sheep to, to graze. But the more wealthy leaders, they would actually hire shepherds um, to tend to their animals. And these leaders would scold their shepherds and they would say to them, you know, why, why is it that Harith is able to graze his flock so easily you people must just be being lazy you boys are being lazy and you're not trying hard enough to to feed my flock because this blessing that had come into their life وسلم, was really noticeable the i mean it was just miraculous even when the other women they would get together you know like you'd have a mother and baby group with all the wet nurses and their babies and you know they'd get together and chat almost like sort of nannies getting together with their kids, the women would talk and they would comment and they would say, you know, you've really acquired some huge blessing in your life because now Halima is doing very well. She has a milk business. She has green pasture. Her family are all doing very well. And before this, she was always the one that everyone felt really sorry for, you know, rubbish piece of land, couldn't really grow anything, desperately poor family, 
her husband really, you know, couldn't do anything to help because their the land was so bad. Everybody felt so sorry for her before. And now they're like, they're just amazed. When Halima and her husband would discuss this between themselves, they would see that all of their circumstances had changed and they would trace it back to the day that they picked up that little orphan baby boy, Muhammad And she says, we both said to each other, this child is the reason we have all this barakah and blessing. And she said, this child had like a light, a nur in his face. Like people just wanted to be with him, look at him like as if this little baby had almost magnetic personality. And as he grew up, he was unique, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, in the sense of his character. He was very intelligent. He was, uh, you know, he was very calm. He was very serene. Most two-year-olds that I've met aren't very calm and serene. You know, quite a few tantrums. He didn't have any of that. Now, children that were looked after by their milk mothers, their wet nurses, they would typically go back to their own mothers, to their own families at the age of two. It's not that they stayed away for a full two years. Um, there would be some kind of toing and froing just so that the, the mother could see her baby in between. Otherwise, that would be a very long time, wouldn't it, to be without your baby? But effectively, they would live with their wet nurse and her family for the first two years. So when the two years is up, Halima takes Muhammad وسلم, back, but actually she didn't want to give him back because not only of all the blessings that came with him, but she'd really got very attached to him. So when she goes, when Halima goes back to Amina, to the mother of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, she tries to convince her to let the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, stay with her a bit longer. And initially, as you can guess, Amina didn't want her little baby boy to return with Halima. But Halima suggested that, you know, remember we said that there were diseases that would happen in the city of Mecca. And at the time there had been an outbreak of one particular disease and it was having an effect on the mortality rate of the children. So she said, oh, you know, this it's very dangerous now. And, you know, you can imagine the kind of conviction that she put into her voice because she really wanted this little baby boy, Muhammad وسلم, to come back with her. She said, you know, it's so much cleaner in the desert. So finally, Amina, the mother of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, finally, she agrees and Muhammad وسلم, returns back with Halima and her husband Harith to the Banu Sa'ad in the, the Bedouin tribe um, that he grew up in the first two years. We don't really know a great deal of what happened in that first two years. We just know that the Prophet Muhammad had an amazing effect of bringing barakah to the life of Halima and her family. And what happens next, we'll talk about in the next episode, inshallah.